Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are a letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Well, good morning, everyone. So actually, before we get into our message, I did want to highlight a thing that's happened in our youth ministry it's like two weeks ago now. So we, we, did, we had a group of high schoolers, we went to camp. Um, so lots of things could be said, and good and bad, we did a lot of walking. Um, but I did want to highlight two things that I think were really special, um, because as a, as a church, we're intergen- intergenerational. We care about young ones and old ones alike. So I want to make sure that we all know what's happening in the youth world as well. So two things about this week at camp in, uh, in Brevard, North Carolina, a couple weeks ago. A second, we had a really good time um, connecting with other churches. So we, were, we went to be part of a, it was a group called Southland. So they partner up like other PCA churches from mainly on Central Florida, but they're greater beyond as well. And we all met up and we just had a great time connecting with these kids. Um, our kids really enjoyed, I think, getting to know other students that were their ages who believe the same things that we believe, right? We all are very aware of how big of a spectrum Christianity can be. So you may talk to somebody, they're like, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe anything the Bible says. Like, we would have an issue with that. Um, so it's nice to have conversations with other kids who are like, yeah, I believe that the Bible is true, and just other things. So we had a great time. And actually, there was a really one cool connection we had. So one of our girls, she was wearing a T-shirt that um, we got from our last year's mission trip in Manchester, England. And he's like, oh, I have the same shirt. She's like, what? He's like, yeah, we have the same shirt. We, we, worked, we did a mission trip there. I'm like, oh, we did a mission trip there. Um, and it turned out they actually are partners with a city church in Manchester as well. So it was cool that they like trade shirts um, and just like it was trade stories. And they're like, oh, yeah, you guys are the church that painted the fence for their other church. We're like, oh, that's so cool. Um, usually you don't, you usually like, oh, great mission trip, and then don't hear anything about it. But it was cool just seeing how the work we had done had impacted uh, their church over in Tallahassee. And then lastly, I want to highlight, so actually, I heard from multiple kids that their favorite part of camp wasn't the the lake or jumping or bubble soccer or anything. What they were saying actually was the highlight was the worship time, how there was, we had a group from uh, Seven Rivers across across the state. Um, Their worship band led it, and they just did a phenomenal job, amazing worship, and like, I, I would love to go over there some Sundays to kind of to experience that as well. But then also the speaker, this was a guy out of New City, Orlando, and he just did an amazing job. He just talked about things with relevancy and with um, commitment to the scriptures and conviction. It was just really powerful. Uh, so I just want to say thank you all for supporting our youth ministry of our church. Um, we really couldn't do it without you guys' prayers and your support. Um, and so just, I would really encourage you, like, if you have high schoolers and middle schoolers that aren't involved, like, Use the summer to get plugged in, because we do have a lot of things going on. We do have our middle school game night this Wednesday. We have Bible studies going on. Um, just really, I would love for you guys to be part of what the Lord's doing in our students' lives. All right, sales pitch is over. All right, so this morning, as we go into our message, I want to start us off with a little exercise. Now, before your heart starts just going crazy, like, I don't want exercise, <clears throat> what we're going to do this morning is a mental exercise. So push-ups can be done in the lobby afterwards. 
Now, what I want for you to do this morning is to do a little mental exercise. And what I want you to do is I want you to think about your past self, right? What were you like 10 years ago? What were you like 20 years ago or 30? If you're a teenager, like I'm not even 30 years old, what were you like five years ago? Um, because if, you, if your old self were to meet your new current self, what would that past self say? Now, <laughs> no, knowing myself, this young man would say, I love what you did with your hair. <laughs> yeah, but... Yeah, that's, that's actually exactly what I would say. Um, now, for, so for many of us, 10 years ago, we looked quite a bit different. Physically, we looked a lot different. Um, some of you guys were babies 10 years ago, so you looked really different. Um, so physically, we look a lot different, but I think also mentally, we are, many of us are very different. A lot of us view the world quite a bit differently than we did 10 years ago based on things that have happened to us or around us in the world. Hopefully, we could all say that we are mentally stronger than we used to be, that we've matured mentally. Uh, my, my wife often remarks that she's still waiting for that mental maturation to happen in me. But what, what I want us to do at this moment, I want us to move past the physical. I want us to move past the mental for a second. I want us to think spiritually. And I want us to ask ourselves a question as, have I grown spiritually? Am I more like Jesus today than I was five years ago? Does my life demonstrate, does it reflect that the faithful God, who's the king of the universe, the ruler of my life, does my life reflect that he's been working inside of me or not? These are some heavy questions that they definitely came to my mind as I was reading 2 Corinthians 3. And I think if, you, if we're being honest, when we ask ourselves these questions, we don't necessarily like the answers that we get. I'm going to say this morning that this passage is really going to challenge us, just as Scripture often does. But at the same time, this passage is going to greatly, greatly encourage us. Because we're going to be encouraged mainly because this passage teaches us a lot about the Holy Spirit. In this passage, he's referred to in verse 3 as the Spirit of the living God. We're going to be encouraged because we're going to see how we can receive growth that comes through him and, all and that happens in us because of, because of him. Now, unfortunately, I would say that the Holy Spirit is often called the, the forgotten mem member of the Trinity, especially in kind of Reformed Presbyterian circles that we, we spend a lot of time in. We kind of put him off to the side I'm sure that if many of you, if I were to ask, you could tell me quite a bit about God the Father. You could say probably a lot about Jesus, but it's my guess, and there's exceptions I know, it's my guess that if I were to ask you about the Holy Spirit, we would have a little bit harder time, and we might have to think about it a little more than just com coming off the cuff. So one of our goals this morning is to change that. Our goal is to walk away from this place with a better understanding of who the Spirit of the living God truly is. And our goal is to be able to articulate some, I, some is the key word, some of the things that he does in the lives of his people. And I do, I do say some, 
because we don't have the time or even have the ability to go through an exhaustive list of all the things that the Holy Spirit does in our lives. Well, I really want us to focus in, to hone in on this concept. And this is our, our takeaway truth this morning, is that the Holy Spirit writes the story of Christ on our hearts day after day. So the, so the way I want us to go about kind of unpacking this takeaway truth and see how it's played out is by t- using two different pictures uh, or images that describe the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I really went on a limb because I was tempted to say three, but I'm like, no, we're going to go two today. So we're going to see that the Spirit acts as a stonemason and as a postal worker. Now, if you are following along with the text that we read just a minute ago, especially the first few verses, you would have picked up on the language that Paul used of, uh, kind of about this, this letter, this letter language. In both verses 1 and verse 2, Paul uses the phrase letter of recommendation. Verse 3 says that his audience is a letter of Christ. There's a reference to ink. And lastly, there are tablets that are mentioned. Now, we are pretty spoiled in our day. Because when we hear the word tablet, we tend to think about iPads or equivalents. And we think about those, those magical screens that have games and movies that just entertain us for hours, and we forget what day it is. But obviously, for the people in Paul's day, they weren't thinking about iPads. The, thing, the t- stone tablets they were thinking about were the ones that you had to go and chisel out of a rock face. And so, and that, was, that was a whole process, right? So you went and you removed the tablet that you designed and you desired to get. You're like, I want some pretty edges on there. You're going to knock it out. So you do all that. You get it out. But then the work's still not finished. Because now you have to chisel out the message you actually want to say. Like even think like text messages, like, hey. Like that took a, three days to do. But, um, so, so guys, if you really want to impress your girlfriend or your wife, Bring home this week a chiseled-out love tablet. It will, it will speak volumes to them. I'm not doing that. Sorry, Danny. But, but, right, so, but this wasn't easy work. You've got to chisel it out of the wall. You've got to chisel the words that it says. And this wasn't easy work mainly because the, the material that they were working with wasn't malleable. That stone is not just this easy, moldable, adjustable surface. That's, that's kind of why we're so impressed when we, when we see pieces of art like the statue of David in Italy. Now, I, I was going to put up a picture of the statue, but this is a PG sermon, so you'll have to look it up later if you haven't seen it before. But, you know, this, this is a 15-foot statue that Michelangelo roughly took three years to make. And so we're impressed because we understand all the ex- extreme precision and work that it took to make that giant, beautiful statue. I mean, it would have only taken one wrong chisel mark for Michelangelo to have to start all, all over. You know, Michelangelo, he was an incredible, incredible artist. But while he had this incredible ability to, to break off and to shave off pieces of stone and make, enable, in order to make art, he didn't possess the ability to make the stone into something else. That even though he was able to transform this big chunk of marble into a realistic-looking man, he lacked the ability to make the rock into a a real man. 
He couldn't make a man who could breathe or think or walk. He couldn't make a woman who could, who could laugh, could sing, or could dance. Our Michelangelo's masonry skills had limitations. However, those limits do not apply to the Holy Spirit, who we say is the ultimate stonemason. Because what the Holy Spirit does is that he takes hearts of stone and he makes them into flesh. Now, for some of you this morning, this is very strange and kind of abstract, weird thinking. You know, you may have just had your yearly physical and, you know, the doctor did not say a thing about granite being stuck in your heart. What we mean by a, a hard, hard heart is this is a heart condition is a spiritual one, that there is a spiritual hardness inside of us. Now, I do want to stress that a person with a stone heart is not necessarily an unpleasant person. You know, individuals with stone hearts, they can be good neighbors. They can be great friends. They can be great teammates. They can be great bosses. Having a stone heart doesn't mean that everyone is just, who has one is just sad and miserable and cold all the time. But ultimately, what having a stone heart means is that a person is hardened. They are resistant to the things of God. That, and this resistance, it comes in various forms based on the person. It may look like anger, it may look like distrust, um, disgust, outright, outright rejection to God. We could go on and on. But the point is that a person with a stone or hardened heart is opposed to God. I, I think for, for me, the clearest example of what a hardened heart looks like, and probably for, same for many of you, is Pharaoh in the Exodus account. You know, in the book of Exodus, we have the Israelites had been enslaved in Egypt, and God had sent Moses out to go, to go free the people, and Pharaoh, he refused, right? He did not allow the people to leave, to leave Egypt. So God, he sent the ten plagues. And these, these plagues, these were ten powerful, clear signs that fully demonstrated the power of God. Through these signs, that Yahweh showed his power over these cheap imitation gods of Egypt. That even if you kind of go through the signs, you realize that each of them were pointed at a specific Egyptian god, say, take that. Like every god that Egypt had was just destroyed. They were unhelpful at all to the signs that God had sent. So there's these powerful signs. Everyone could say, you, were, you could not ignore what was going on in Egypt. And yet, Scripture tells us that Pharaoh hardened his heart toward God. That he saw this power of God at the like, first hand, but he still rejected God. He refused to obey. But if we read the, the whole of Scripture, we, move just, we don't just look at Exodus, we look at the whole of Scripture, we realize that hardened hearts are not rare occurrences. They're not oddities in the world. Instead, the Bible teaches Exodus something quite the opposite. The Bible teaches that every one of us initially has a heart of stone. That we are born sinners, which means that we are born with these hearts of stone. And when we have these hearts of stone, we are opposed to God. And the Bible is clear that all who are opposed to God will not inherit eternal life in heaven. That's a major problem. Because all of us are going to die someday. And we need to, like, 
if we are told that we're opposed to God and we don't receive eternal life, that's a major, major issue. So what is the solution? What is the antidote to a stone heart? How do we receive that eternal life in heaven? And the answer is through the work of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit's the one that softens our heart through the power of the gospel. And the gospel is a word that means simply the good news of Jesus. Because the Spirit is ultimately the one who makes clear to us what the gospel means. The Spirit is the one who helps us make sense of why the, the God who created all of us, who, who we freely and happily rebelled against, why this God would willingly send Jesus to earth to be born as a baby. To, to be born into a family with no status, no wealth, to live a fully human life, which meant he experienced pain and hunger and thirst. And he did all of that in order to be betrayed, to be beaten, to be bruised, to be spit on, and ultimately to be nailed on a cross to die. Like, why would God subject himself to that? Why would God, who is enthroned in heaven, choose a lowly manger and a wooden cross on earth? To a person with a stone heart, that makes no sense. He's God, we're not. Why would God do that? But this is where the great stonemason gets to work. Because the Spirit reveals the reason why Jesus came. That Jesus didn't just come to be a good example or moral compass for us in our lives. But Jesus came because of our sin. Because of the vileness and hardness inside of us. That Jesus came to pay the debt that we owe to God so that someday we could be called sons and daughters of him. What the Spirit does is he cracks open our hearts. He shows us just how bad our sin problem is, how invasive it is. The Spirit shows to us our great need for a Savior. And then he shows us that Savior. That he shows us the solution that can be found in Jesus who's not a savior who's far off, who we need to do X, Y, and Z to get to, but that the scriptures tell us that he is near to the brokenhearted, to the hard-hearted. The risen Lord, you know, Jesus wasn't, he didn't stay dead, but he rose from the dead. He's sitting in heaven now. This risen Lord invites us to come to him in faith. And no one who ever comes to Jesus in faith will ever be rejected. The Spirit's the one that reveals this need that we have, and how, what the solution is. So friends, I have a question for you this morning. Has the Spirit been chiseling away at your heart? Has the Spirit actually shown you just how deep your rebellion is against Him? How far it really goes? Has your sin been laid bare before you as it's cracked open and it's now sitting in front? Has it been laid out in front of you? Because if so, turn to God and surrender to the full work of the Holy Spirit. Because what the Holy Spirit is doing is he's making a masterpiece out of what had once been made of stone.
just, just, just ponder that for a moment. That, that I, who was once a wretch, a broken, undeserving, sinful person, that now I've been made into, and I'm called a masterpiece. A masterpiece that's so much greater than some statue in a museum in Italy. But I am a masterpiece that has a place in heaven now. The spirit of the living God, this, this great stonemason, has made us into masterpieces. Not just to be sat in a museum or an art gallery, but God has made us into to be letters. So, so our second image this morning, so we had, we, God is a stonemason, and then we, he is a post officer. So in, in the first two verses of our text, one and two, Paul, and then it, it says we, so the we is actually Paul and it's also Timothy. These guys, they were on the defensive. As it often happened in Paul's ministry, he was always, almost always put on a kind of metaphorical trial, literally sometimes a trial, but in this case, a metaphorical trial, because he was forced to defend himself against the false teachers who had worked their way into the church. You know, they were asking to, for him to kind of prove his credentials, to, to prove his message, to justify his message that he's giving. And in this case, in, in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul, in, actually in chapter 2, he referred to this group as peddlers of God's word. You know, they were trying to make money off of God's word. These guys were asking Paul for a letter of recommendation. So in other words, what they, what they were asking Paul and Timothy to do was to produce a letter of recommendation from other people saying that they were worth listening to. Well, if I had to summarize Paul's response that he gave in just one word, it would be this. Seriously? Like, y'all are asking me for my references right now? Like, let me give you one key reference. How about the Corinthian church itself? The ones who I'm writing this letter to are my witnesses. Because through what we read in these six verses, it's clear that Paul loved these people that he said actually that their names were written on his heart. He had taught them about Jesus. He had laughed with them. He had cried with them. He had challenged them. He had encouraged them. He had served with them and alongside them. In, in, in my opinion, the only letters of recommendation that are really worth reading are the ones that show that the person who's writing that letter has spent a significant amount of time with the person they're recommending. And Paul was saying that he'd done so much with these people that no physical copy of a letter was necessary because their very lives were serving as a living letter of recommendation, that the results of his work could be clearly seen and acknowledged. The members of the Corinthian church were not the same as they had once been before. They had been transformed from who they once were. They were examples of this heart of stone going into a heart of flesh. And Paul, I want to clarify, he wasn't speaking from a place of pride here. Paul wasn't saying that it was his, like this transformation that was taking place in their lives was a result of all the work that he had done. He wasn't asking for them to give him a nice pat on the back. But rather, God, he was pointing out how God had used all the work that he had done in that community 
And he was calling these people to, to remember and to glorify God for all the ways that the Spirit had moved in that part of the world. Paul was saying this, that the Corinthians were not a letter of Paul, but instead they were letters of Christ. That their lives reflected the work that God had done in them. The Holy Spirit had written a story on their hearts and their lives. He had written the wonderful story of Jesus on their hearts, which is a story of amazing love and glorious redemption. It's a story that results in a hope and a future. And this is a story that was not meant to be hidden in the recesses of their minds, but instead it was supposed to be the shaping component in their lives. The story of Jesus, this good news, was supposed to be the core of their lives. And it should have impacted everything that they did, from the way that they parented, to the way they treated their spouses, to how they handled money, how they viewed politics, it defined their sexual ethics. The story of Jesus is what gave them strength and confidence in their lives, even in the midst of trials. The Corinthians had confidence in life because the Holy Spirit had taught them something that all of us here this morning need to know and to be reminded of daily. And that's Jesus is enough. That the work of Jesus is sufficient for me. That's sufficient for all of us. And I need, we need to be reminded that there is nothing that I need to do or even can do to make the work of Jesus more complete or to somehow improve on it. One thing I love about this passage is that it teaches us something about the dance between sufficiency and dependence. All of us are dependent on God to be saved. I love the image that many of the Puritans used back in the 16th century. They used to say that our, in our saved dependence was like we were in a pit that we had dug ourselves into, and all, and all our efforts to try to get out just made it deeper and deeper. That's, we're dependent. We need to be saved. We're in a pit that we cannot get out of. But then we see that God is sufficient for us. That means that he can reach down into that pit and he can pull us out of it. That, again, all of our efforts have only got us deeper down, and yet God is saying he just pulls us out of that pit. Paul was reminding the Corinthians to not forget their sense of dependency because God had got them to that point, that God had pulled them out of that pit. He had saved them from the pit. And there would not be a time in their lives when they would not need him. That it's not just God pulls us out and then he leaves us on our own. What God, he pulls us out and then he is with us all of the time. God had made these people into a letter. And that letter was meant to be shared with those who were around them. It was meant to be delivered to other people. <clears throat> One of my favorite biblical illustrations of, that kind of help us understand what this looks like comes from Luke chapter 8. And in Luke chapter 8, we read a story about how Jesus encounters a demon-possessed man who is nicknamed Legion. Now this man, he was called Legion because of the, the amount of demons that were inside of him. 
Just to, to put into perspective, they say that a Roman legion consisted anywhere between 5,300 to 6,000 soldiers. Now, I don't think we should take it to mean that he had, he had, this guy had all those demons in between, but that gives us the idea of that there was a lot going on in this man's life. And these demons, they would torment this man. They, it says clearly that they would actually take him out into the desert, and we all are all very aware of what, it, what life in the desert was like. This man was feared by the town, people of his town. His, his appearance was ragged. He was naked. He was, his mind was completely gone. He lived amongst the tombs. Right? His, his house was in the tombs outside of the town. And people would take the long way around town just to avoid seeing him or even the idea of being seen by him. But all of that changed when Jesus encountered this man. This, this legion of demons stood no chance against the word of the Most High God. And every last demon of the legion was cast out from this man by the word of Jesus. So when, so when the people of the town heard about something that had happened, like something had happened, they rushed out to see, and they were shocked by what they saw. That this man who had formerly been called Legion was now calm. He was collected. He was properly dressed. His mind was restored, and he was sitting at the feet of Jesus. The text tells us that these townspeople were so frightened, afraid of what they saw, that they like they, were, they asked Jesus to leave the area because he, they were so scared of this man and what he could do. And as Jesus was leaving, this, the, this formerly demon-possessed man, this former legion man, begged Jesus to let him come with him. He's like, just let me be one of your disciples. Let me follow you. And Jesus did something interesting, though. He actually told him to stay. And he said this instead, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. So the man, he returned and he proclaimed to the whole city all that God had done in his life. The, the power that cast out a legion of demons is the same power that brings sinners from death to life today. It's the same power that turns a stone heart into flesh. And as living letters, which is what we are if you're in Christ, we are called to read ourselves to those who are around us. And we're supposed to say, look what God has done in my life. And look what he's continuing to do in my life. And then we remind our friends and our family that God can do the same thing in their lives. Many of us struggle with this. I know that I do. We feel inadequate and we're, we're afraid of what people might say or might think. We're afraid of saying the wrong thing. We're afraid of judgment, rejection. But again, this is where we go back to the dance of dependence and sufficiency. Because in our weakness, in our fear, in our doubts, we ought to rely on God. We're supposed to depend fully on Him as the Spirit makes us to be sufficient to be ministers of the covenant of grace. Now, this doesn't mean that we're all called to be pastors or missionaries like in a foreign country. But rather, what this means is that all of us have been called to share the wonderful news of salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. We're called to share the story that has been written on our hearts that the Spirit put there. 
And we are called to trust that the Spirit who wrote that story and is continuing to write that story every day will turn, will, will lead and guide us in this process as we share the gospel with other people. None of us are the great stonemason. We're not called to turn people's hearts from stone to flesh. Instead, Paul says that we have all been called letters. Letters that tell a wonderful story of Jesus. Letters that tell other people about how God makes masterpieces out of wretches. So this morning, I want to really encourage us to listen to the calling of the Spirit that's writing that story on our lives. I want us to be daily reminded of the story of Jesus and the hope that it brings. And then may we go out to do the work that God has prepared for us to do. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we are thankful that you are writing a story in our lives. We recognize that we are often feeling inadequate at sharing this story, Lord, but I ask that you ingrain it so much in our minds this day that we will not be able to go in a conversation without somehow speaking about how Christ is writing my story. He's working in my heart. He's transforming me and how he can do the same thing for others. Thank you for making us masterpieces, Lord. Help us to rest in that, to find, to find comfort in that as we go through trials and hardships. Because, you, God, you love us. You care for us so much that you died for us. And we are so thankful that you are just continuing to work in our lives. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.